Turn to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua 3. I'm going to read the passage. It's one of those where everything's important, so let's take a look at the passage. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents, to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. This morning, I want to tell you something. You are standing on dry ground. You are standing on dry ground. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord and Savior, if you have confessed your sins, repented from them, turned from your own false righteousness and to his perfect righteousness, then you are standing on dry ground. And I hope to show you 
why this is important to you this morning before we're through. In Joshua 1, we saw that Israel had arrived at the banks of the Jordan and blessings were imminent. They were right across the Jordan as they stood on the border to Canaan. But in order to realize them fully, they were told that they had to be strong and courageous. Ultimately, what we found out was that no one really has that type of strength. No one really has that type of courage. In particular, nobody is really strong and courageous enough to lay hold of God's fullest blessing, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of being able to walk uh, out the gospel in our lives. We need the strength and courage of Christ to do that. And God has made that strength and courage possible to us, available to us, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Joshua 1 was about the principle of sacrifice as we look to these chapters to see what we can learn about God. In chapter 2, we heard that our fears can either paralyze us, they can either make us desperate, or they can set us free. And in the lesson in chapter 2, we saw the omniscience of God. Well, we saw the fact that God knows everything. God knows what was, God knows what is, God knows everything that will be. The assurance that you and I have in knowing that God knows everything is in the assurance that God knows us. He knows what we were, what we are, and what we will be. So, while Joshua has some pretty incredible lessons about our practical living, while Joshua can tell us a lot about living the gospel, being messengers of the gospel, we're also we're trying to mine some of the deeper truths here. This is a historic book, and it's filled with incredible truth. We want to know what the Bible says about us. It's a, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with finding out what the Bible says about us. But we want to do the digging. We want to challenge ourselves. We want to, we want to stretch ourselves and dig, dig as deep as we can to see what this says about God. Because the Bible is God's story. It's God's story. It's not ours. It's the story of him. Starts out with him and ends with him. Now, the beauty of searching for God in the scriptures, if we are willing to dig into the scriptures and dig deep to find out more and more about his character and nature, is the more we learn about God, the more we learn about ourselves. Ultimately, what we find out is how desperately we need him. And as we find out how desperately we need him, we begin to understand the magnitude of his grace and the endless nature of his mercy. We find out something more profound about God in each chapter here. We want to hear today why it's important for us to know why we are standing on dry ground. So our sermon's called Dry Ground. It's part four of our series, The Promise in the Land. Let's take a look at our text. Now, chapter three comes in three sections. I'm calling them steps because each section brings Israel closer to the promised land. Verse 1 through 13 shows the preparations prior to crossing. Verse 7 shows the promise that they have in and through Joshua and with the crossing as well. And verse 14 through 17 gives us the passage through the waters. Now we're not going to get into it today, but because I love alliteration, so you know we have the we have the preparation, the promise, and the passage. Chapter 4 tells us about piles of rocks. I had to stretch for that one. So let's take a look at our first step here, the preparations for the crossing. Now, the one thing you're going to see as we go through this is that chapter 1 of Joshua is just jammed full 
of word pictures and metaphors and, and wordplay on all this. So, and some of, it, some of it shows up, again, this is digging deep, some of it shows up in how they measure time. In Hebrew writing, we find a concept called inclusive reckoning in how they measure time. Inclusive reckoning. This is in your notes. It's in the outlines that you have in your, your bulletins. If you didn't get one, put your hand up. We'll get one for you. But in, in, inclusive reckoning means that any, to the Jews, any part of a day counted as a whole day. Now, let me tell you how important this is. It explains the crucifixion and resurrection because Jesus is crucified in the evening on Friday. He raises up in the morning on Sunday. Uh, by any Western measure, that's somewhere around 36 or 40 hours. And, you know, a lot of people go, well, that's not three days. But to a Jew, using inclusive reckoning, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three days. So uh, it's important for us to understand that. And, you know, this is a great example as well as how we prepare for our sermons. Uh, Scott does this. I do it. People in Apollos are learning how to do it. Uh, we try and determine what is known as authorial intent. When we read and when we interpret scripture, interpretation of scripture is not up for grabs. It can't mean anything we want it to mean, anything we want to make it mean to mean. We want to know what the author intended to say. So that takes a little bit of digging in the language. It takes quite a bit of study in the culture. We need to understand what was going on back then in order to find out what the author intended to say. But we also want to know what the, what the readers understood. And again, we have to do some digging in the language. We have to do some, some digging in the culture so that we can learn what God wants to teach us from a passage rather than just interpreting it out of our own perceptions and our own circumstances. Now, let me explain how this, this concept of authorial intent and inclusive reckoning works in Joshua chapter 3. First, in verse 1, we see the whole camp leave Shittim and walk to the Jordan. That's about a one-day journey. It's about 17 miles or so, 16, 17 miles, just under 20. And they camp there at the Jordan for three days. The actual phrase is at the end of three days. could be just easily translated as on the third day. And again, here's why this is important in our passage. If you go back and look at chapter 1, you find out that Israel spends three days at Shittim getting ready to go. So you take that three days, you add the one day of travel, and then you add the three days at the banks of the Jordan, and you find out that Israel is going to cross Jordan, the Jordan, on the seventh day. Now, seven has significance for the Jews. It's highly symbolic. If we didn't understand the idea of inclusive reckoning, we wouldn't be able to follow this here. Seven is a number that, that indicates what in Scripture? Completion. Completion. Crossing on the seventh day would tell the Jews that the things that God is leading them in, the things that God is telling them to do, are part of God's perfect, complete plan. They're perfect in every way. They would tell them, essentially, that God's at work in everything that he's calling them to do because of this number seven. And on that seventh day, as they're getting ready to move, the, the orders that they're given, the marching orders that are given, are very revealing. In verse three, we see this. The officers go through the camp and command the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, 
of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Now, throughout chapter 3, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, is at center stage. The Ark is a subject of almost the entire chapter. And now we know that because of this whole concept of repetition we've been seeing. This is the first of 10 times that the ark is mentioned in chapter 3. So, what is the ark? Well, you know, we all have an idea what the ark is, but let me tell you what it is. It's a box. It's a box. It's a very carefully designed, very special box, a box built to very specific instructions given by God to Moses when he was dictating the the measurements and construction of the tabernacle and it was built to God's specification. You can see the specifications in Exodus chapter 25. It probably looked something like this. You've seen pictures of this before, but it's about two and a half, three feet long, about two feet wide or so, probably about two and a half feet deep, and it's covered in gold. It's got cherubim on the top where uh, the wings of the cherubim are almost touching. It's got rods on the side and hooks so that they can be carried. It's, it's very elaborate. It's very beautiful. And it probably looks something like this here. It was built to be placed in the most sacred spot in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where God would dwell once the tabernacle was erected. And it was supposed to contain three symbols of Israel's relationship with God, a jar of manna, Aaron's rod, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, somebody very intelligent, more intelligent than me, came up to me after the first service and said, have you ever wonder that, whether or not that represents Trinity? And I said, well, no, I, I haven't. And he said, well, you've got the manna, which is bread. Uh, you have Aaron's rod, which is power, authority, presence of the Spirit. And you have the commandments, God. And so, they, they, again, the more you dig on these things, the more beautiful scripture gets. So, the ark and its contents, listen carefully, were a symbol of the covenant that Israel had with God. And so, you're going to see it referred to as the ark of the covenant. But they were also a very strong symbol of God's presence among them. So, from time to time, you'll hear, hear it referred to as the ark of the testimony. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony are the same thing. And in chapter 3, if we look closely at the Hebrew language again, the Ark is referred to in an incredibly reverential fashion. The close literal translation of the way it's used in verse 11 is the Ark of the Covenant, comma, the Lord of all the earth. The Ark is synonymous with the Lord of the earth. In verse 14, it is the Ark, comma, the Covenant. The ark is synonymous with the covenant. And in verse 17, the ark, comma, the covenant of the Lord. The ark is the covenant of the Lord. In some ways, the way the Jews perceived the ark, it was the covenant, it was God himself. That's how reverently they revered this. So it it had the awe of the entire nation. It had the respect of the entire nation. The ark was the most holy physical possession that Israel had. There were very specific rules as to how to move it, how to pick it up. There were even specific rules as to who could touch it, who could look directly upon it. The tribe of Levi, 
The priesthood was in charge of it. They had the responsibility to move it. They had the responsibility to care for it. Nobody else could touch it. Nobody else could tend to it but the Levitical priests. So, you know, even as we look at the small detail, we don't want to lose the big picture here because Israel's about to take perhaps the most historic march that they've taken since Moses led them out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt. So after centuries of captivity, after centuries of struggle, after 40 years of wandering, they are going home. They're going home to the promised land. And look what goes before them, the ark. And look what the ark represents. Look who goes before them, God. God will go before them. God will go before them into the Jordan and on to Canaan afterwards. Now, remember what we learned in chapter 1. They would have to be strong and courageous, but God would be their strength. God would be their courage. And in chapter 2, God has already given them the land, the land that they have not yet entered. So this is how it's all done. This is how God is going to do all these things. God is showing them what he has been showing them all along. He goes before them. God goes before them. This is how they're going to accomplish everything God has promised to accomplish. Israel is about to undertake a holy procession behind but with God at the same time. They're told in verse 4, to keep their distance. There could be a lot of excitement. You see people clamoring for this, but they're told to keep their distance. They're to follow by 2,000 cubits. Cubits about 18 inches. They're told to follow the ark by about 3,000 feet, over half a mile. And there are a number of lessons just right here in this distance they're supposed to keep from the ark. First, it tells them to remain at a reverent distance behind God, to respect him. It's not a request, it's a command, a uh, command that they are to, to obey. They are to respect and revere the commandment, uh, respect and revere the ark. And, you know, the underlying messages don't get too familiar, don't too, get too casual with God. You know, you can only approach him a certain way and only when he calls. So crowding around the ark and mobbing it like we would a celebrity today doesn't show reverence at all. Second, God is going to show them the way. He's going to show them the exact steps that they should take. He's going to show them the path. And when he shows them the path, they're going to know the way. God says, you haven't gone this way before. You haven't done anything like this before. You haven't, you haven't followed me this closely. And I'm going to show you how to do this. So we have a physical and we have a spiritual connotation to God showing them the way and them knowing it. God will show them the way across the Jordan. He's going to give them a path to follow in the real world, steps to take. And at the same time, as they strive to follow him physically, he's going to show them his way. He's going to show them his way to godliness. He's going to show them his way to holiness. He's going to show them how to follow him. And it starts with obedience. Keep back by 2,000 cubits. Third, going to demonstrate that God will not be hurried. God will not be pushed. Their distance, listen, their distance will allow them to do nothing more active other than to follow him and obey what he says. Fourth, any difficulties, any obstacles that they encounter, 
God will encounter first. God will be the first engagement. Any battles they have, God will engage that battle first. So for all these reasons, as we see the physical, as we see the spiritual implications of of God saying, follow me, I'm going to go before you. Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves in verse 5 and 6. That means that they are there to set themselves apart, that they are to practice holy living as best they can. They are to prepare themselves to be used by God, prepare themselves to experience miracles, wonders, supernatural occurrences, And as they prepare, as they hear all this, as they're absorbing all this, as they're standing there on the shore of the Jordan, as they're looking over and, and, you know, they've got the flood, they've got the people over on the other side, and you, you could feel energy, you could feel excitement. And as they're being told all this and consecrating themselves, the priests begin to move. The priests begin to move. And you can see, you can just see the whole camp getting, here we go, this is it. And right then we run into our, our second step, the promise, the promise of victory. And that goes directly to Joshua. God tells Joshua that he, Joshua, is going to be exalted similar to the way that Moses was exalted. Joshua knew the story. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift you up. I'm going to show them that you're the leader the same way I did jo- Moses. Uh, Joshua knew about the parting of the Red Sea. This is God's assurance to Joshua that he's going to get Israel, the entire nation, over the river and give them the promised land. He's going to use Joshua to lead them even as he leads Joshua. It's a beautiful thing about Joshua. He's an obedient servant. And God decides to make him a leader. Now that leads to our third step, the passage through the waters, verses 8 through 17. Joshua gives them the commands. The commands he got from God, you know, now God said something in the first part and Joshua kind of elaborates on, on that in the second part. We are to assume that Joshua is telling everything to the Israeli people that he was told. So uh, Joshua's not improving upon it, he's just divulging everything he heard. He tells them that they're about to receive a guarantee that that God is going to drive the pagan people out of Canaan. And he, he, he even mentions the ones that are going to be driven out. It's kind of important as we go through the book. They're very carefully named in verse 10. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Now notice this. It is God who's going to drive them out, not them. It is God who is going to gain the victory. It is God who is going to get the glory. God may use Israel to do all this, but it is God who goes before. God who gives the commands. God who tells them who's going to be driven out and where they live. And all of it, all of this is going to be set in motion, he tells them, when the priests carrying the ark step into the water and do what? They wait. You got all this energy. They've got all these weapons. They're mobilized. They're ready to go. God says, here we go. And the very first thing I want you to do is wait. That is so contrary to my nature. I don't know how you feel about that. I was like, wait, you got to be kidding. I'm ready to go. God wants him to wait. Waiting upon the Lord is a good thing, brothers and sisters. It has a tendency to keep us from getting too far ahead of ourselves. He wants him to wait. 
It's all pretty exciting. But I'm sure the priests, particularly the ones that are carrying the front of the ark, are kind of wondering, how are we going to get across that river? (laughs) They'd probably like to know what that is. Well, we find out what they're waiting for and how they're going to get across the river in 12 and 13. A little interlude here in 12. uh, Joshua tells them to designate 12 men, one from each tribe, obviously a representation of the entire nation. We don't know why they're to be designated. What we do know is they're not going to be the ones carrying the ark. It kind of looks that way, but you know what? They're not allowed to carry the ark. Only the, I mean, I mentioned earlier in the passage that the ark is carried by the Levites. These aren't Levites. We're going to find out what their job is in chapter 4. We do know, though, this. When the, when the feet of the priests rest in the waters, and after they have waited, then the wonders spoken of in verse 5 are going to begin. In verse 13, we hear what those wonders are. Listen to this. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. They'll be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. God tells them, wait, because I'm about to do the physically impossible. And he's going to cause the river to pile up in a heap. And when he, when he does that, they're going to know that he's given them the land. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But understand, all these people have heard about what happened at the Red Sea. There are only two of them in this entire nation that saw what happened at the Red Sea. Anybody know who they are? Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones that survived. The rest of the generation is dead. These people have heard about the parting of the waters. Now God is going to show them what it looks like. God's going to show them the same miracle that he showed Jesus, except this time there's one major difference. He tells them ahead of time, this is what I'm going to do. He says, keep your eyes open. I'm about to show you something that you need to see so that you can go forth in my strength and courage to do the things that I've called you to do. So he chose them so that, he tells them about it so that there's no question about who does it. He tells them about it ahead of time so there's no question about why it's done. God's not only showing them that he can get them across the river, but he's going to do it in such a manner that guarantees them that they're going to take this land and live in it. Then in verse 15 and 16, we find out that it happens exactly as God said it would. Take a look at the detail in these two verses, 15 and 16. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. We've been talking about that. And the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Let me be very precise here. When the priests step in the water, the Jordan River stops flowing. The Jordan River stops flowing. It's not just a dam. And maybe that's what some of us had a picture of, a dam stopping the water as it came down. 
But if it were a dam, because of how fast the water was going and how much water there was, it would have created massive flooding upstream. The Jordan River stopped flowing. In the springtime, the flooding would be incredible. The flow stops. The NIV says it this way. The water from upstream stopped flowing. The Holman Standard Christian Bible says the water flowing downstream stood still. Not only does it stop, but it stops at Adam. Why is that in here? Well, let me tell you something. Adam is 17 miles upriver. It's, 17, it's a day's walk upriver, 17 miles to the north. Do you realize what that means? Just think about this for a second. It means that if the Jordan River is at flood stage, and at flood stage it flows at approximately 7 miles an hour or so, um, that's really fast for a river. Uh, seven miles an hour. If the water stops at Adam, the water that was at Adam that continued to flow from the point that it stopped would take about two hours for that water to reach the point where the priests were. So God actually stopped the water two hours before the priest stepped in the river. So it, it, God's timing, absolutely perfect. The water stops at Adam. Two hours later, the priests arrive at the river's edge. The last of the water flows by, leaving the riverbed empty. You see the miracle? You see how far-ranging it is? You see how huge it is? It's even bigger than we think. In order for the river to stop flowing, that part of the river to stop flowing, the entire river had to stop. The entire river had to stop. It, isn't that what the text says, if you take a look at it? In verse 13, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. We think it just happened in front of them. It means that the entire Jordan Valley, from all the way up north to Lebanon, all the way down to the Dead Sea, stopped. Stopped being a flooded river in the middle of the harvest season. Stopped long enough for Israel to cross over. I saw a cartoon on this not too long ago. And the water stops and like five or six guys go running across and then the water comes back. Okay? How long did it stop? Well, you know what? The text doesn't say. But we can get a fairly decent idea of what was going on here. Because if you look back at Numbers 26 where the census was taken to find out how many men were eligible to go to war prior to getting to Canaan, we find out that there are over 600,000 men. So we know that there are about a million and a half people because there are 600,000 men. Okay? Not, so 600,000 men had to get across the river, and not just the men, but supplies, food, weapons, carts, horses, camels, everything that was needed to sustain an army of a half a million people or more and fight a number of battles and occupy the area on the other side of the Jordan. The water stops. It's a supernatural event that absolutely defies all reason and logic in spite of the fact that there are people who are skeptical about this. Well, we always know that there are people that are skeptical about what the Bible says. Even believers try to explain it away. And you should know that this area around Adam, an area of frequent seismic activity, it still goes on today. 
And of course, there are those who say, well, it was an earthquake. I mean, the region had earthquakes all the time. An earthquake, just an earthquake. If you ever watch a history channel, you'll see that. Because the narrator will go, just then an earthquake happened. Okay, just then a volcano erupted. Just then, you know, something happened. And it, like, it, well, you know, you really can't attribute this to anything miraculous. It's just, it just happened to happen this way. Well, okay, you know, maybe, maybe it was an earthquake. Uh, and maybe we give a little bit of latitude. And, and, but, but if it's so, if it was an earthquake, then those skeptical people are going to have to deal with God knowing the exact location, nature, and time of an earthquake so powerful that it totally upsets a 400-mile-long river and mile-long river valley, yet is unable to interfere with a half a million people walking across the riverbed. It's just like those people who go, well, you know, the Red Sea is the Reed Sea, and the, the, the water is only four inches deep. That's how they got across. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. The entire Egyptian, Egyptian army drowned in four inches of water. You got to work at that. Even if there was an earthquake that stopped the river. It doesn't explain, you know, we, we get overshadowed by some of these spectacular things, but even if there was an earthquake that stopped the river, it doesn't explain what is perhaps the most amazing aspect of this crossing, one that could very easily go unnoticed in the spectacular nature of everything that happened. Look at verse 17. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood where? Firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. There's the ark again, the centerpiece of the chapter, the presence of the Lord going before the people. The people are to follow the ark. But look at the verse. The, the phrase that's repeated twice in one verse, dry ground, loved ones, dry ground. They're walking on dry ground. Do you see the miracle that occurred here? They're crossing a riverbed that has been submerged in water for eons, tens of centuries, two, maybe 3,000, maybe 4,000 years. The rushing water in front of them has just stopped flowing. And instead of a quagmire of mud and muck, they are walking on, on underneath Water that, that flowed, they're walking on dry ground. The word is haraba. haraba. Uh, the idea is that it's solid, that it's firm. You've got to think about that. God made dry ground so his people could cross the river. See the big picture? The big picture in three... We saw those three steps, the preparation, the promise, the passage through the water. It's all there. But if you just see that, you, know, you only see part of the story. Listen, we, we, we heard about the ark. We, we heard about it over and over again. Signifies the presence of the Lord, Lord going before them. All they have to do is follow. All they have to do is follow and obey. He's already given them his promise. Now he's, gonna, now he's going to take them to the promise. He doesn't just make the promise to him. He takes them to it, and he's going to take them through it. But you know what? It, it's going to be a tough walk. It's a hard river crossing. At least that's what they thought. It's going to be followed by an even tougher battle. We'll see more miracles as soon as that ensues. 
Yet God says, I'm about to show you something that's going to convince you the, the crossing is done. I'm about to show you something that is going to convince you that that battle is won. God not only stops the waters, uh, and it happens quite suddenly, not only that, but he, he, forms, he forms the water into a hill. That's impossible. Water can't do that. What, God conforms the water to the image he wants it to take on. He makes it in a hill. He makes a hill out of water, a supernatural reminder that nothing in this scenario happens without his presence and power. But God gives them firm, dry ground to walk on. And the message of Joshua chapter 3 is this. When you follow God, you're standing on dry ground. It's a tremendous lesson for the Jews. But you know what? It's a lesson for us too, isn't it? We can appropriate this. Isn't God showing us something here about our lives today? Of course he is. He tells Israel when they follow him, they're standing on dry ground. What does that have to do with us? Well, let me ask you this. God says, follow me. You'll be on dry ground. How many times does Jesus Christ say, follow me in the New Testament? You don't have to go look it up. I got it right here. 22 times. Jesus says, follow me, 22 times. He says, follow me. Where was he going? Well, first he's going to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and he says, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. He paid for our sins. He bought us back from death. He says, follow me, confess your sins, repent, and follow me. Where was he going? Well, after the cross, he's going to die. Jesus says, follow me, deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow me. Why should we follow him to death? Well, we follow him because he rose from the dead. He gained victory over sin. He says, follow me, follow me, and live. But that's not all, friends. He wants us to follow him because he wants us to follow him because ultimately it's not the cross he's going to, it's not death he's going to, it's not even the resurrection. Ultimately, he's going to the Father. He says, follow me. I'm going to the Father. We're seeing a principle here. Follow me. I'm going to the Father. God goes before the Jews at the Jordan. He gives them safe passage and victory so that you and I will know that Jesus goes before us to give us safe passage and victory. He is taking us to the Father. And we see it all the way back in Joshua, that the way to the Father is on dry ground. The way to the Father is firm beneath our feet. It is firm beneath our feet because the way to the Father is Jesus. And Jesus is what? He's the rock. You can't get any firmer than that. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the rock we stand on. He's the rock that will dry up a river. He's the rock that will dry every tear that we've ever had. He's the rock that will carry us into the presence of the Father. Jesus says, follow me. I'm the dry ground. I'm the path to your new home. I'm the path to the fulfillment of every promise God has made to his children. Follow me. Like that? Well, that's just for us. <laughs> you know, and there's supposed to be something about God in here. 
What do we learn about God in chapter 3? Well, what we learn about God permeates everything else we've learned. It trumps everything else we've learned. We saw his sacrifice in chapter 1. We saw his omniscience in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, we see his omnipotence. We see his, his unlimited sovereign power over everything in creation. He brings everything to a halt. Makes a mountain out of water. Makes mud dry ground. Takes his people across it. Not only that, he had chosen the people who were going to go across. Chosen them all the way back at Abraham. We see, we see his, his omniscience and, and his, his sacrifice. We see his omnipotence. Uh, we see his absolute total control over everything in space and time. God demonstrates that he is the sovereign authority over everything, including the destiny of his children. And for that, we have the assurance of our salvation. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't true, wouldn't I say that? I wouldn't tell you if that wasn't the truth. And I'm coming back for you. And if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, he's coming back for you. Not only is he coming back for you, we're not waiting to see what happens when he gets back. He's coming back to take us home. And we know that because he's taken Israel home to the promised land. Let's pray.